everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. You can Find Author Magazine at authormagazine.org. And we are funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. You can learn more about the PNWA and their fabulous yearly writers conference at pnwa.org. Well, I hope you had a chance to check out uh, my new podcast, Fearless Writing with Bill Knauer. Uh, A lot of people have been checking it out, liking it. I hope you get a chance to run over it. You can watch it on YouTube. Or you can check it out in your favorite podcasting app. These are five to seven minute weekly dollops of inspiration dealing with subjects like ending procrastination, uh, dealing with the inner critic, getting into the mood to write, what is fear, that's another one. All this kind of stuff. Hope you're interested. Go check it out. Fearless Writing with Bill Knauer. All right, enough about me. Let's talk about today's guest, Mr. Gary Simons different kind of thing. He's debut novelist. He'd written three nonfiction books, but a neurosurgeon, a neurosurgeon. And we had a fascinating conversation about, well, just about that, about the life of a doctor, a surgeon, the high stress, death, people in their darkest hours often dealing with him and the impact that has on doctors and people in the medical community. Very interesting conversation. Uh, Gary Simons is a retired neurosurgeon who's treated tens of thousands of patients. He's the founding chief uh, of neurosurgery at the Carilion Clinic, uh, Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine, and the author, like I said, of three nonfiction books, but Death's Pale Flag is his first novel. We had a great conversation, and I'm glad I get to share it with you now. Enjoy. We have got Gary Simons, author, recovering neurosurgeon here, here on the show. Gary, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. I, so I want to clarify you. So obviously, you you made your your major career in life was as a doctor, a neurosurgeon. Do you still you don't still practice though? Do you? Or am I? Did I get your bio wrong? No, you're you're correct. I stopped operating a couple of years ago, um, and uh, but I still teach at a medical school and as well as undergrad. So I'm still kind of deep in it, just not doing the surgery anymore. Okay, and so you're here today because you've got your first novel out, Death's Pale Flag, a a, a, a thriller with a lot of a lot of. Uh, medicine in it <laughs> a lot of neuroscience in it or neural or practice it, it takes place in a with a our protagonist is a neurosurgeon and uh gives us a deep glimpse into that world but this is book number four yeah there were three non-fiction books before this yes sir yeah um so uh i, I you know becoming a doctor particularly a surgeon that is a lot of work for a young person uh, you know, that it, it seemed that just becoming a doctor is a full-time job. Doctor's a full-time job. So, but writing can be a bit of a full-time job. So was writing of interest to you when you were a young man, knowing you wanted to go into medicine? What was your relationship to writing at that time? Yeah, I think uh, I've always had some interest in writing. 
um, even writing uh, nonfiction, I mean, even writing fiction, I should say, I really since way back when, ah. but no real formal schooling in it. And uh, boy, as you're kind of noting, once you get on those those tracks, uh, the medical tracks, it is it is a fast moving train. Yeah, and it's uh, not the easiest thing to step off at, at any point. So, you know, yeah, I, I would always have a, a scrap of paper or a little notebook in my pocket and every so often scratch down a couple thoughts um, and uh, try to get a little creative now and then. But but really w- wasn't able to to get much done while I was uh, in, in the mix of it. Of course, you know, in in medicine, you actually are writing nonstop. You're, right. you're always writing something about patients or communications or you're doing stuff online and, and all for the for the system. But uh, it's very different. I, it is. I recently had some, I, the, uh, the medic, my doctors, that's part of the university of Washington medical community. And so they, when they get results, they get sent to me and I looked at them and I had to go to my doctor and said, would you please translate this into human English? Because I do not even know what this person's talking about, but it reminds me of the law a little bit, which is legalese can be so, it means something immediately to a lawyer not so much the lay person. I imagine that's true somewhat of medical writing. Oh, I think 100%. I I, uh, I do a fair amount of uh, advising with pre-meds and I work with med students and all, but one of the things I've kind of uh, underscored is that uh, going into medical school, to me, it wasn't, wasn't all that challenging cognitively uh, it, it, other than just the vast volume that's coming at you, but it really is learning a new language. I mean, you, you yeah. speak medical and it's all about yeah. efficiency. You're just trying to convey concepts, which could be somewhat complicated in a couple of words, like right. a, a STEMI, a, a, a ST elevated myocardial infarction means <laughs> a lot to somebody who's in it and may yeah. mean not much to somebody who isn't. It means nothing <laughs> to someone who isn't. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is uh, when I talk to writing students, um, and I don't tend to teach the craft that much. I teach other aspects of writing. But but when I do teach the craft, if, if I had to define what I call good writing for me is how do you say the most in the fewest words? Like that, even if you're writing something which is rich and layered and long sentences if you go for that you're still i feel like always trying to say the most in the least amount of space so in that way there's a crossover between the medical writer and the creative writer yeah it's interesting i i uh i i found that i tend to babble when when let loose oh really Uh, yeah which is interesting (laughs) um and so, for example, this novel was, I don't know, 260,000 words originally. And, wow. you know, uh, I realized that that's probably not going to be read by too many people. So uh, but but learning how to be more efficient in communications probably helped weed out a lot of stuff. But yeah. boy, the first part was just kind of like verbal dysentery. It just came pouring well, out. But, but that's OK. You know, you know, uh, it's sort of like there's a there's a mode of teaching acting, which is they would or directing an actor, which is they would always rather have an actor give them too much and then say them get them to dial it down. So I think sense. there's something to be said for just letting it rip. And then, I mean, there's a lot of work that comes after, but better just let it flow and have too much 
than to just, you know, be super cautious and precious with every word. I think that's probably less creative way to go. So maybe your instincts were okay, Gary. Maybe they were pretty good. Maybe. I I, I certainly know when I read, uh, I get very impatient with people who fill fill the paragraphs with uh, a lot of words. It, it reminds me of what Amadeus, the movie Amadeus. Yes, yes. The king tells him, well, there's too many notes. There's too many like, notes. Well, yes. What notes would you want me to drop out? <laughs> All right. So one of the things that you, an interest that you, uh, or something that became interesting to you. So you're a neurosurgeon. So if you're operating on someone's brain, there's trouble. You know, it's it's one thing to say, be someone who de- does ACL repair. Uh, it's not life and death, but necessary, but not life and death. And it seems to me when you're in the world of the brain, not always, but you're on that, you're in the world of mortality. Is that fair to say? Oh, fair I think it, yeah. I mean, I think it's very fair to say. I think, you know, even the quote simplest of, of brain operations, uh, you know, if it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. Yeah. You, you don't have a lot of room for error. You're carving, you're cutting out a hole in their skull for Christ's sake. That part, I mean, you describe it in the book, and I just, I had to just kind of step back, take a breath, because it kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie to you. But you're, so you're carving, you're, you're, you're having to get to the brain, which is encased in a bone, so it's not that easy. I, although, did you? Are there ways in that don't require uh, hacksaws? Well, I mean, uh, for. Back in what the forties and fifties, uh, they were they were doing these prefrontal lobotomies where they were driving a, a sharp instrument up through the roof of the eye socket. Oh. So I guess you could do it that way. <laughs> oh but God, we, we tend not to. <laughs> That's surgery by Mengele, for God's sakes. Okay, it, it practically is. Yeah. Okay, but but you got interested in something which would have interested me, I think, which is the effects of the intense pressure, the life and deathness on a person all the time. So you're a human being, I would say, you're a human being first, you're a surgeon second. You know, you are always gonna be a person, you may not always be a surgeon, you may not always be a writer, may not, but so you got interested on that, in that effect on a person and that became the focus part of your extracurricular work, is that right? Yeah, the... What we were really trying to do is plumb um, what are the the forces behind um, physicians who start to experience burnout, uh, because you know we're, we're told all the time, at least in the lay press, that fifty uh, percent of physicians are burned out or burning out. And really, since the since the pandemic, they're I saying sixty some percent. Wow. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and frankly, I saw it on my own team uh, and that's how I got involved. And, and so, you know, part of it, like everything, I guess, evaluating it like a, an illness, the first thing we were trying to do is get to the bottom of it. Why? And what, it, particularly with my own team and then more in general, but what are the forces that drive this? And certainly one of my theories, uh, was that this kind of constant exposure that everybody on my team had uh, to death and dying and human suffering and tragedy and this kind of, I, I call it mayhem, where it just feels like the universe is arbitrary and yeah. and awful things just come out of nowhere and, and 
change people's lives forever. Well, you're at the epicenter. You're kind of Times Square of all this. Yeah. Uh, you know, tr trying to direct traffic, I guess, but watching one accident after another. Yeah. And, and frankly, in my business, you contribute to it some too. You know, you, you, you even through the best of intentions, we're not perfect. So sometimes we probably make it worse. And you got to right. deal with that as well. And so... Um, yeah, that amongst many other things that could potentially be driving uh, the burnout became very, I I found very interesting. And and I think it's real. I mean, I, I, I think we train ourselves to just block it off. I know right. I did. I mean, you just block it off and you don't even pay attention half the time to how awful it is. But I, I, I tell this little vignette that that, you know, throughout my time doing this and telling families horrible news and talking about injured and dying children and all that sort of thing, I could I could pretty much just kind of steam through it and go and you had to almost because you had to go from one to another. But since not doing it anymore, I found myself to be insanely uh emotional it's like the slightest things will kind of touch off emotions good or bad i mean i i, I find that i find joy much easier now too but you know i'll be watching some silly tv show that you know is is designed to be touching i guess and here i'm feeling my eyes well up and and then next thing there's a cat food commercial and it's doing the same <laughs> thing to me you know wow. maybe maybe gary there's some pent up. <laughs> Maybe this is the release from having to just hold it together because you couldn't be doing that in your job. You couldn't be. You couldn't. You had to kind of hold it together. It's almost like almost like war in a way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I actually I used to tell my residents that is that guys, this is the closest thing you're going to experience to war. I mean, the, the intensity, because, yeah. you, you know, we were always at these level one trauma centers and those helicopters are coming in nonstop. Right. And, you know, in the middle of the night, it always seems to happen in the middle of the night. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, we would get 15, 20, 25 emergency consults in the middle of each night and you're running wow. around. And, and a lot of it isn't as emergent as they make them out to be, but some are. And yeah. And, some you're just rushing straight to the OR. And so you so you wrote three nonfiction books about it, but you got the you got the idea. Now I assume this was this after you stopped practicing, stopped doing surgery. Did you did you start the book or did the what did the book begin even while you were still practicing? Yeah, it began years and years and years ago oh, okay. uh, with little, you know, again, jotting down things or various ideas. The The first version of it the, is totally different. But, you know, again, it's another it's another heroic, handsome, beautiful uh, uh, brain surgeon who who uh, discovers it. Basically, he discovers a plot against Supreme Court justices because ah. All He's right. at Walter Reed, which is where I started. Um, okay. And uh, he eventually meets this beautiful uh, FBI agent, of course. But uh, that wrote, that one really stunk. So Did it? That, <laughs> that ended up in the trash heap. Okay. But but it was the beginning. And so you were yes. you, you knew somewhere you, that there was some interest around fiction. It was it was it was nibbling at you. Yes. Is, was this one was death's pale flag was that begun in earnest once COVID kicked in or or did it did it had you started it even before then i had um started it beforehand then it got shelved because it just 
it it did feel like uh, more work than I had time for. And yeah. actually, a a YA novel popped up in between oh. um, that uh, about a soccer playing kid. But anyway, uh, that that actually went all the way through, went through a couple of rewrites, and then that got shelved when I retired and uh, I leapt back into it. It was almost a compulsion then. My wife would tell you it's some sort of exercising of demons, but uh, it was almost a, a compulsion then. The, the minute I had some real time, I just sat down and wrote constantly and uh, rewrote probably 30 times. Sure, sure. All that stuff. Um, well, and the book deals with, it has a kind of a paranormal element to it um that's part of where the suspense comes from which i would say which was a compelling part of what compelled me to do this interview because of course when i think doctors they tend i don't know what their relationship to the paranormal is but usually they got to kind of be blood and bones and leave it to that but i i but maybe there's a broader spectrum of beliefs within the medical community um that surprised me a little bit so talk about that decision to bring that part of the story into it. Well, I, I, I guess part of the compulsion to write the book was I, I wanted to give as no holds barred and just plain upfront representation of what goes on in that world that I inhabited for decades. Um, And I began thinking that I, I, that, non that nonfiction there are some really good nonfiction books about it but they still felt a bit didactic to me and and I felt like if I made it into a uh, a fiction a novel that it might be much more immersive that you know yeah. I, maybe I could put you at the head of the operating table right. and feel the blood running into your shoes you know and that sort right. of thing and uh, and so that's originally, again, these thoughts were swirling for a while. So originally it was going to be this guy saving the Supreme Court justices. But uh, but uh, I, again, I didn't I didn't like where it was going. And I started thinking that about, uh, again, what we were just, what we were talking about earlier, that you are so surrounded by death. Um, one way or the other, somebody's either dead or dying or at risk of dying or terrified of dying. I mean, it's just death is everywhere. And I started thinking, I can't, I had my, my family definitely had uh, a paranormal side, believing side. So that right. was an influence. But um, I started thinking, well, if you were a ghost um, and you were trying to touch this side of the sphere, you know, uh, yep. um, and in the book, we, I kind of talked about it being a bridge, if you will. But if, you know, if you were trying to reach out uh, to people on our side, um, maybe the first people that you would kind of see are those people who are there on the bridge <laughs> interfacing right. with death all the time, which the right. surgeon was. And, you know, might be easier to kind of reach out or even get mad at the surgeon for trying to steal people away or or whatever. And that's how that started brewing. And then I started thinking it would be really fun to play with the paranormal because I, I would want to challenge a reader to think about what's more what's actually more scary, the, the supernatural world or the natural world that you're you're reading about in the book. Right. Now, that's interesting. Now that's interesting. And where do you personally land on that? Which freaks you out more some, when you think about it? <laughs> well, I think if a 
ghost walked in, I would be pretty freaked out. We assume. <laughs> you assume. Um, you don't. You might not. But I, you know, and and I guess I was trained. I guess that's part of the training is I had to not be afraid of it. I had to be not scared. In fact, I used to beat into my poor residents. I said, if you operate scared, you are going to hurt somebody. Right, you know, you, right, you right. have to feel in control and be in as much control as you can over the situation. Because the minute you get scared, you are not the same person. You're not processing the same way or anything right, like that. Right. Um, but I would argue that the, the, you know, the, the, this side of the great divide becomes even more scary, I think, because of just how horrible it all is and how sudden it all is and all the loss that's involved. And And I'll tell you the other thing that we saw a lot, uh, it, I, I ended up treating families almost as much as I'm treating the patients because a lot of times you couldn't do much for the patients, but the families are devastated. Oh, and, that would be the hardest part, I would think. Yeah, you've got to you've got to work with them, and 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 they dealt with so much guilt. It was just like, and I just saw this universally. The minute you know the, this sort of thing happened, all this guilt came flooding in. We should have done yeah. this. We should have said that. I should have told them I loved them. Oh, all this yeah. stuff, and and boy, I, I, that was my focus. It was always trying to alleviate as much guilt as I possibly could. Well, it's interesting. You know, you have to do so much training, so much training to do what you did. And yet, I can't imagine, but to be there, to be the one to be with someone when they just learned that their loved one has passed, you could spend a lifetime training for that and only that because yeah. that requires, and yet there's no, the skill set necessary to operate has nothing to do with the skill set. Not saying they can't both exist in the same person, but it is a totally different skill set. It's a totally different way of looking at human beings. And so it's, it asks so much of doctors, I think. I, I have an operation coming up and I was talking to my surgeon and I was like, oh, this woman, she seems very competent, but good Lord, I just don't know if she's even aware that I'm a human being. She I, she seems really sweet and she clearly knows her stuff. But I was like, I just need to talk to a nurse or somebody who do, who doesn't have to think the way she, this doctor has to think, you know, and I, but I, but I understand like it's a, it's a, you have to think a certain way to do what she does and what you did, I would think. Yeah, and I'm sorry to hear you have to face some surgery, but uh, I, it, I'm sure you could almost watch her shift into that surgeon mentality uh, where, you know, they're answering the questions, but, uh, you know, are they really feeling the uh, the questions? No, I, I, what I thought to, I said to my wife afterwards, because we were talking about it, it was, it was kind of a big deal to me. And I was like, she's had this conversation a thousand times. I have never had it. And yeah, exactly. I, and I and I really would prefer to be talked. I would like that acknowledged, but I get it. It's hard, but that would have been better. But you know what? We all have to we all have our lot in life we have to deal with. So that was, you know, I can't expect her to be perfect. But I did notice that. I didn't notice that you gotta it would be better if she had knew how to have it as if she'd never had it before, you know. And it's yeah, and it's not, I mean, it really is a is a uh what a tight needle to thread or whatever you oh, want yeah. to say. Um, because I, I've also found that patients are very astute at uh, at seeing people who are just putting on the show, put it oh, yeah. box who are you know patting yeah. the hand and yeah. and saying all the the right things, but they they're treacly or whatever. And and you know, I, even even under all that duress, the patients and the families are quick to recognize if you're sincere or not.
Yeah. Well, we're human beings. We're human beings. And I really appreciated that you brought the human element to it. You were obviously focused on it. I always say to my writing students that the only thing humans really care about is how they feel. And as writers, we we uh, traffic. You know, there's a, speaking of which, there seems to be an emergency going outside my window right now. <laughs> um, we uh, We traffic in what it feels like in life, not what's happening, but what it feels like when something's happening, because that's ultimately the human currency. Do we feel good? Do we feel bad? Do we feel scared? Do we feel safe? And I thought you did a really nice job of of tapping into that throughout the experience uh, of the life of a surgeon. So well done. Well, thank you. I I I, I wish I had you uh, teaching me before I I went about all this stuff because uh, if it's if that sort of thing is coming across, it's it's by sheer luck because I I I guess I just you know kind of winged it to a certain degree. It's not true. I bought every writing book that I could find and but you've read fiction, right? Oh yeah. You know, and you read That's the thing. It doesn't count for nothing because as we're reading fiction, we are sort of teaching ourselves what a story is. And we sort of naturally, if you have any kind of ear, begin to imitate it on some basic level. Right. And, and I, you know, you check in with yourself as a person, unless you are really divorced from your emotional life, you have you, what you're feeling and what you're going through emotionally is always there whether you're cut off from it or not but don't you think i mean i mean this is part of your bread and butter right but but don't you think that uh it really helps to define it sometimes you you know you can pick up all this stuff to to have somebody actually point it out to you and say you know this is what we call exposition yeah oh oh, for sure for sure we need a little bit of it here and and so forth uh i i think uh I, I mean, part of the joy of doing this was it was a huge learning process uh, anyway. But, uh, you know, I think it's like it's like teaching surgery. Uh, I would I would take the residents and I, w- I would make them go through the operation ahead of time. And it, yeah. half half of it was, OK, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What are you thinking? What's yeah. the yeah. Um, and as opposed to kind of doing it. And I think that's what you do with teaching uh, with uh, writing. Right. You help Absolutely. people define. I do. And I and I it often I will I will point out like find where you're most uncomfortable. And then find, like that's what I will have to say to him sometimes interesting when I would teach memoir writing to really beginning writers. Sometimes they would read like some of these letters you get at Christmas where like, we did that and then we did this and then we did that. And I always tell my students, nobody cares what you did. Nobody cares what you did, but they want to know what it felt like when you did something. But nobody, nobody, nobody cares what happened to you. No one ever cares what happened to you. But if you tell them what it felt like when something happened, then they're interested. And it seems, it's a, that was, you know what's interesting about that though? I had to teach it to learn it. In other words, I always knew it but it was when seeing people not do it that I understood, oh, they're leaving out that whole part of life. I assume you, maybe you went through that yourself when you saw your residents making certain mistakes. You're like, oh, my God, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I'm re- even writing down what you said. You know, you 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 should uh, you should have a side uh, business on helping uh pre-meds with their med school applications because they have to they have to write this thing that's called a personal statement yes yeah and it's like the only part of the whole application process that that lets you 
see a little bit about who the person is behind it. And that's exactly what they do all too many times. Is I did this. I did this. Then I did that. Then I did this. Yeah. Well, I, I had a client who her job was, one of her jobs was to write TED Talks. And she would do a lot of them for scientists. And she said they had no idea what a story was. They just couldn't. They just had, they had the numbers, they had the results, but she had to teach them what a story was, even though, and this is so interesting, we live our life surrounded by stories. We are yes. always in story, you know, it's a constant thing, but she had to teach them. So, but you clearly have a sense of it. So good on you. Good on you, Gary. I, and thank you for writing down some of my words of wisdom. This is the world I live in. This is it. So, okay. So the book is Death's Pale Flag. It's been out for a couple of weeks now. Yep. Uh, available where all fine books are sold. Are you enjoying, I mean, it's such as it is, are you enjoying talking to people about the book, getting out there, what, however much you're doing it, uh, having a little back and forth? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, dynamic that I, I had never really anticipated until st I started reading all the books about uh, you know writing fiction was that, you know, I'm actually supposed to do a lot of work afterwards and, you know, uh, do a little bit of hawking it and do a little bit of, uh, of you know, PR and all that sort of thing. The, the honest, the, the reality of it all is I love doing public speaking. So I do a lot of public speaking in the medical yeah. realm and feel very comfortable with that. So like, it's one of my, I, I hope that obviously I hope people read the book and react to it. And I want to hear kind of their responses to it. Uh, but I would love to talk to, you know, reading groups and reading clubs and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't mind do, doing it at all, but it, it, it's taking more time than I anticipated. <laughs> yes. Well, welcome to the world of the author, my friend. This is, yes. this is how it goes. This is how it goes. Well, You'll, you're a smart guy. You'll learn. I hope you write another one. I get the feeling you might. I get. The oh, feeling. there are many in oh, good. process. Yes. Good. Okay. But I got a, I got one more question for you. Yeah. If you've listened to this podcast, you may have anticipated this, but <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway, which is all the writing you've done, all of it, not just this novel, all of it. If it's taught you anything, it's taught you what? Um. It, uh, it, it, you know, th there's never short answers to to nice, quick questions like that. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, it's it's taught me uh, a lot of patience, I guess. Yeah. I am not a patient person. It, it, and I guess, again, I, I, I you're so warped by by the worlds that you <laughs> inhabit, maybe yeah. evolve instead of warped. But <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm good, good. Warped. Um, and my world was not one of patience. It was right. everything now, everything gets a solution right away. Everything has to be, you know, as perfect as it can be instantly. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not a patient person even standing in line at the coffee shop. You know, it's come on, come on, make a decision. Yep. I, yep. I, I yep. get your latte and move on. Um, and uh, man, I, I am learning patience because yep. I, had no idea how much it was going to take. Yeah, I will tell you, uh, I became a, a much more, um, I, I began approaching mastery, I felt, around writing when I understood the pleasure of waiting for the next word, when I actually enjoyed the wait as much as when it came. It took a, that took me about 25 years, 
to get. But eventually I understood that it was as important and as useful and as meaningful and as pleasurable as when it was coming fast. So yeah, patience. I you in fact I will tell you between writing and children, I've decided it is impossible <laughs> to be too patient. That there is no, there is no, you will never be too patient in life, I don't think. Yeah, my poor, I had three boys and uh, those poor kids grew up right in the total the teeth, teeth of it. Yeah. Of my, yeah. So patience wasn't necessarily uh, no, I'm sure. my virtue in those days. Well, my friend, congratulations. You did a great job. Uh, I hope you have fun talking about it and good luck writing the next one. I, I so much appreciate it. And I'm honored that you would have me on. And uh, thanks so much. You are welcome. Patience, people. Patience, patience, patience. You just can't, man. I'll tell you. Wait. Wait happily. Wait comfortably. The idea will come. The word will come. That's your job. You ask, and it comes, but you got to be patient. Yeah, Gary was right. Interesting, wasn't it? I thought so. I like the guy. Anyway, I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank my producer, RJ RJ Jeffries. Thank you, my friend. And listen, all you out there, just do what you love. But really, just if when in doubt, wait. When in doubt, tune into something you love, something you're interested in. And ask yourself, what should I do next? What would be the best thing to do next? And then you just wait and you keep waiting. And eventually the answer comes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Till next week, go find something you love to do and do it.